0: Shalom Mishpocha. Welcome to our latest Kadima talk, making a difference. Differences that make a difference. I want to start with a young David who goes up to camp where the armies of Israel are battling the Philistines and Goliath, the giant. It's a story we're all familiar with, but there's a lot of specific points in here that speak to us today in leadership, either in your business or your ministry or your family. Very good information. So let's start on 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 20. David got up early in the morning, left the sheep with a helper, took his load and set out as Yishai had ordered him, that's his father. He arrived at the barricade of the camp just as the troops were going out to their battle stations and shouting a war cry. Israel and the Philistine had set up their battle lines facing each other. David left his equipment in charge of the equipment guard, ran to the troops, went to his brother's and asked if they were well. And as he was talking with them, there came the champion, the Philistine from Gat, named Goliath, from the ranks of the Philistines, saying the same words as before, and David heard them. When the soldiers from Israel saw the man, they all ran away from him, terrified. Verse 25 The soldiers from Israel said to each other, You saw that man who just came up? He's come to challenge Israel. To whoever kills him, the king will give a rich reward. He'll also give him his daughter and exempt his father's family from all service and taxes in Israel. Verse 26, David said to the men standing with him, What reward will be given to the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyways that he challenges the armies of the living God? And the people answered with what they'd been saying, adding, That's what will be done for the man who kills him. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard then when David spoke to the men, and it made Eliov angry at him. He asked, why did you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You just came down to watch the fighting. Verse 29, David said, what have I done now? I only asked a question. He turned away from him to someone else and asked the same question, and the people gave him the same answer. David's words were overheard and told to Shaul, Saul, who summoned him. And David said to Saul, no one should lose heart because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul said to David, you can't go to fight this Philistine. You're just a boy, and he's been a warrior from his youth. And David answered Saul, your servant used to guard his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear would come and grab a lamb from the flock, I would go after it, hit it, and snatch the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned on me, I would catch it by the jaw, smack it, and kill it. Verse 36, your servant has defeated both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has challenged the armies of the living God. Verse 37 Then David said, Adonai, who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the paw of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go. May Adonai be with you. You know, what makes David different? Why is he able to fight against Goliath while an entire army trembles in panic and won't fight? In fact, they retreat because of fear. Well, there are several specific reasons that David was different from all the rest of these warriors that are there. Number one, he had a kingdom perspective. David's perspective differed from the others. David saw an opportunity for Adonai to move and reveal his power and might against this uncircumcised Philistine giant. What is a kingdom perspective? Simply put, kingdom perspective is God's perspective. It's viewing life through his lens, not our own. It's the bigger picture which allows us to view events differently. In First Kings 15, verse 5, for David had done what was right from Adonai's perspective. He had not turned away from anything he had ordered him to do as long as he lived except in the matter of Uriah, the Hittite. Yeshua himself did the same in Mark 8, verse 33. But turning around and looking at his Talmudim, he rebuked Kepha. Get behind me, Satan, he said, for your thinking is from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. Most self-aware leaders recognize that perspective is one of the most valuable things they bring to their role. And the best leaders, whether they would describe it this way or not, all use the power of perspective to be more effective and successful. Listen, we experience this when we watch football. I suppose not all of you watch football, but if you do, just watch two or three plays. And you'll notice that they have the big screen over all the stadiums now, and they have eight or ten different angles that they view plays with. So you see one play, and it looks like the player was out or the ball was a fumble. They'll switch to four or five different camera angles, and what's that do is give you a different perspective from all these camera angles available today, and it drastically changes how we interpret the play. So we must have a kingdom perspective. David's perspective was different from even King Saul and the entire army. Number two, methods. David had a different method and tactic than the army. David used proven weapons that he was an expert in using, and he knew they would work. Different scenarios require different methods. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says, we are human, but we don't wage war with human plans and methods. We must be adaptable and able to employ different methods to get the victory when we're in varying scenarios. Number three, David had great conviction. David's conviction, which is a firmly held belief, was not like the others. David had a deep, intimate relationship with Adonai. He heard Goliath's threats, but knew Goliath could be beaten. David's statement of verse 26 reveals this deep conviction. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyways, that he challenges the armies of the living God? See, this is so critical to us because every one of you has faced, are facing, or will face your giants. They come in all different scenarios, sizes, shapes, in different areas of our lives. But what David reveals to us here are core tenets that allow us to overcome and have victory over our giants. We too must have the similar convictions that David had. Hebrews three verse fourteen, for we have to become shares in the Messiah, provided, however, that we hold firmly to the conviction we began with right through until the goal is reached. Next, David was a visionary. David's vision differed than the Israeli soldiers around him. He envisioned Adonai being revealed to all Israel in the world as the one true and most powerful God in all the earth. In verses 45 through 47 of First Samuel 17, David answered the Philistine, you're coming at me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, but I'm coming at you in the name of Adonai oak the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have challenged. Verse thirty. 46, he said, Today Adonai will hand you over to me. I will attack you, lop off your head, and give the carcasses of the army of the Philistines to the birds in the air and the animals in the land. Then all the land will know that there is a God in Israel. Man, did you hear that? Then this is the same thing we hear with Elijah challenging the priests of Baal. Then all the land will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that Adonai does not save by sword or spear, for this is Adonai's battle and he will hand you over to us. Vision is a mental picture of the future. It's an idea of what the future can hold, but has not yet occurred. It hasn't happened yet. David had the vision and the conviction that victory over Goliath would be achieved. David relied upon the name of Adonai, saying it was Adonai who would hand Goliath over to David. Proverbs 29, verse 18 says, without a prophetic vision, the people throw off all restraint, but he who keeps Torah is happy. We must have vision. Number five, David brought experiences to this scenario. David brought real-world life experience to the battlefield, not panic or fear. A University of Minnesota study reveals that 70% of leadership skills are learned through experience. Can I say that again? A University of Minnesota study reveals that 70% of leadership skill sets are learned are learned through experience. In 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 through 36, remember this is what David answered Saul with, the king. Your servant used to guard his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear would come and grab a lamb from the flock, I would go after it, hit it, snatch the lamb from its mouth, and if it turned on me, I'd catch it by the jaw, smack it, and kill it. Your servant has defeated, both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has challenged the armies of the living God. Some experiences are more important than others. Successful leaders describe similar experiences that shape their development in different ways. And you've heard me say it here numerous times in these some 66, 67 Kadima podcasts. My 22 years of military service, my time working for my father as as a construction supervisor, real-world experiences that prepared me for what I'm doing today. Going on more than uh, almost 50 years of my life. These experiences include early work experiences, short-term assignments, major line assignments, other people almost always very good and very bad bosses or superiors. You can always learn something from your bosses, either good or bad. You learn what to do, learn what not to do, and various hardships, struggles that we've learned how to overcome and deal with them. These all combine to make up who you are. David already had real-world experiences when he's prepared to fight this giant. Experiences are powerful because of the challenges they present. The factors that make an experience are challenged. It's high stakes. It's complex. It's high pressure. It's novel. You haven't seen it before. It's unexpected. In David's case, it was life-threatening. They are what give each experience the potential to become a learning experience. Bring your experience to the table. and If you don't have it, then get out there and volunteer somewhere, intern somewhere, and get those real-world experiences. Next, number six, David had the right godly attitude. He didn't see Goliath as unbeatable. He saw Goliath as a giant target that couldn't be missed. In verse 37 of 1 Samuel 17, David said, Adonai, who rescued me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the paw of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, may Adonai be with you. Our attitude determines our approach to life. Our attitude determines our relationship with people. Our attitude is often the only difference between success and failure. In Proverbs 23, verse 7, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. David had a positive, victorious attitude that turned a big, gigantic problem into a national victory and salvation for the land of Israel. David united Israel reigned for 40 years and expanded his kingdom, banished his enemies, and enjoyed peace and prosperity. So why did God love this uh, ruby-cheeked, red-headed heart player? Well, because David was a man after God's own heart. And First Samuel 13, verse 14, but as it is, your kingship will not be established. He was speaking to Saul. He said, Adonai has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And Adonai has appointed him to be prince over his people because you did not observe what Adonai ordered you to do. And this is when Shmuel went and anointed David to be the next king, but it was almost 20 years before it came to pass. But the kingship was to be removed from Saul. David, while far from perfect, had a passion for the presence of God. And we see this by his worship. We see this as evidence in his desire to move the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He built a new tabernacle, a new Oel Moed fort, and uh, he planned and funded the future temple. I've spoken on passion previously in other Kadibas, so I, I just want to review this here because definitely David was a passionate man. Passion is the first step to achievement. Your desire determines your destiny. The stronger your fire, the greater the desire and the greater the potential. Get on fire. Number two, passion increases your willpower. There is no substitute for passion. I would take passion over talent any day because talent you could teach through real-world experiences. Come on now. See all this is coming together? But if a person has the passion, it's to fuel for the will. If you have the will, you'll be victorious. If you want something bad enough, you'll find the willpower to achieve it. I've had many times. And let me pause and digress. Let me tell you a little C story here. I've had numerous people in the last 22 years come to me and say, "Rabbi, you know, will you mentor me? Help me get into the the program of uh, Yeshiva and the IMCS and the MJA and and." Uh, but the reality is, they really don't have the passion to do it. And as we start the process, only a handful, there has been some made. Don't get me wrong. We got some bright success stories. But there's others that really don't have the passion to do it. And unless I'm pushing them, they don't complete the courses. They don't come to the conference. They don't take the yeshivas. When I started, I knew no one in this. I didn't know one round. I didn't even know the MJAA and the IMCS even existed. This is going to be hard for some of you to believe, but we started before the internet days. You couldn't Google what Messianic Judaism was. And so I was stunned to find out that we have an entire movement. And as soon as I was... Uh, involved in it. As soon as I was introduced to it, I immediately began the process. And, and in just two years, got my license, finished yeshiva, and became an ordained rabbi. But it was completely on my own No, knowing because I wanted to do this. This was my passion. God had instilled this fire in me. He had given me a road to Damascus encounter to do what I'm doing today. Nothing could stop my desire and zeal to do this. There's no substitute for it. Number three, passion changes you. If you follow your passion instead of others' perceptions, you will be victorious. In the end, your passion has more influence than your personality. Number four, passion makes the impossible possible. We're made up as such that whenever anything fires our soul, impossibilities vanish. I can't help it. I got to tell you another story. We were a congregation just one year when we got involved with Judge Real. It's a warehouse uh, messianic um, ministry acts of kindness, open eyes of blindness, shipping containers around the world. They opened a second warehouse here in Chesapeake. I was on the board. We were heavily involved in this. We had a vision from God to send our first container to Israel. Now, listen to this. We had $23.95 in the bank. It cost over $20,000 to get that container from here to Israel. And I, if I had a nickel for every person that told me it's impossible, we can't do it, I'd have $100. But the more they said we couldn't do it, the more we trusted in God and the harder we worked. And in two months, Ms. Pocha, two months, we paid for and shipped that container of medical supplies, computers, and other needed items directly to Israel. <laughs> a fire in the heart lifts everything in your life. A person with great passion, a few skills, will always outperform a person with great skills and no passion. Passion makes the impossible possible. David was passionate in his worship. He worshipped Adonai in spirit and in truth. This expression of worship attracts Adonai's attention. It's a sweet fragrance to his nostrils. Listen, seventy-three of the hundred and fifty psalms written and recorded in the Word of God are attributed to David. That's 48.6%. Almost half the Psalms are written by David. David expressed his heartfelt love and his adoration for Adonai, and he did so in music, song, and dance. David's the one who appointed full-time singers and musicians to worship him continuously in the tabernacle and make Adonai's deeds known among his people. In fact, it's David's example here we were one of a handful of Messianic congregations in the in the nation that has a full-time psalmist and worship artist on staff. This is why. David's example, First Chronicles 16, verses 4 through 9, he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the Ark of Adonai to petition, to thank, and to praise Adonai, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him was Zechariah, Jeiel, Shamiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benai, Obed, Edom, and Jehiel. They were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And the Kohenim, Benai, and Jehaziel were to blow trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant. On that day, David first appointed Asaph and his kinmen to give thanks to the Lord, to give thanks to Adonai, to call upon his name, to make his deeds do among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, and tell of all of his wonderful acts. It's hard for us to comprehend. Uh, but all this previous history before this, this wasn't happening. This wasn't occurring in the uh, in the Mishkan, in the temple. David's the one that instilled this 24-7. This is why we call it Davidic worship, if you didn't know the sources for this, either in your church or your synagogue. And this is why, because of David's passion and zeal to worship and minister to God. David also demonstrated genuine repentance, a behavior trait that we must all exhibit. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, Nathan the prophet confronted David, who then said to Nathan, I have sinned against Adonai. A broken and contrite David wrote Psalms 51 to be read and sung nationwide as a public confession of his sin and a declaration of God's grace and mercy. Psalms 51, for the leader, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after his affair with Bathsheba, God, in your grace, have mercy on me, and your great compassion blot out my crimes. Wash me completely from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my crimes. My sin confronts me all the time. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil from your perspective, so that you are right in accusing me and justified in passing sentence. True, I was born guilty, was a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. Still, you want truth in the inner person, so make me know wisdom in my inmost heart. Sprinkle me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the sound of joy and gladness so that the bones you crush can rejoice. Turn away your face from my sins and blot out all my crimes. Create in me a clean heart. God, renew in me a resolute spirit. Don't thrust me away from your presence. Don't take your Ruach Kodesh away from me. Verse 12, restore my joy in your salvation and let a willing spirit uphold me. Verse 13, then I will teach the wicked your ways, and sinners will return to you. Rescue me from the guilt of shedding blood, God, God of my salvation. Then my tongue will sing about your righteousness. Adonai, open my lips, then my mouth will praise you. For you don't want sacrifices or I would give them. You don't take pleasure in burn offerings. My sacrifice to God is a broken spirit. God, you won't spurn a broken, chastened heart. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Rebuild the walls of Yerushalayim. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then they will offer bulls on your altar. What a profound psalm of repentance. If you're in a dry place, if you haven't heard the voice of God in some time, and you feel like your relationship with this plateauing, I would go back and confess this psalm as your own personal prayer to God and watch the portals of heaven open over you. This, is, this has to be one of the most real, transparent prayers other than Daniel found in the Scripture. This is amazing. Recite this and say it from the heart. Say it out loud. Let your lips proclaim the deeds of Adonai. And, you know, David never turned to idolatry, which was common in Israel at that time. Scripture reveals that a majority of the 42 kings who ruled Judah and Israel fell into idolatry. Even his own son, Solomon... But David never wavered in his zeal and worship of Adonai. That's why God loved David, because he truly was a man after His own heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. David traded fear for faith. First Samuel seventeen verse thirty-seven. Then David said, "Adonai, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will rescue me from this Philistine." David was broken and brokenness involves removing inappropriate pride and self-reliance. This is a problem in America that has a great issue in this area. There's a pride and self-reliance, self-made man, self-made millionaire. We hear this all the time. In another psalm penned by David, he states in Psalms 34 verse 18, Adonai is near those with broken hearts. He saves those whose spirit is crushed. When pride and self-reliance is broken, a healthy trust and reliance on Adonai is established. Adonai humbled David, removing his self-reliance and pride, which is what he learned in the desert, hiding from Saul, a very humbling experience. Now think about this. David lost his army commission. He was removed from the command of Israel's army and hunted in the wilderness by the very soldiers he commanded and King Saul. Stunning. David's wife, for for killing Goliath, remember, he got the king's daughter uh, in marriage. David's wife Michal, Saul's daughter, given in marriage to David for slaying Goliath, was taken from him and given to another man in 1 Samuel 25, verse 44. Next, number three, David lost his spiritual advisor. When he fled from Saul, he first fled to consult with Shmuel, who had anointed him to be the next king. But there's no evidence he ever saw him again. In 1 Samuel 19, verse 18, David fled and escaped, then came to Shmuel in Ramah and told him everything Saul had done to him. So he and and Shmuel went and stayed in the prophet's dormitory. Number four, his best friend and confidant, Jonathan, was separated from him due to Saul's vicious vendetta and desire to murder David. Number five, even David's own men turned on him and were preparing to stone him to death when their town, Ziklag, was raided by the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David was in serious trouble. The people were talking about stoning him to death because of all the people were in such deep grief, each man over sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in Adonai, his God. See, to create that that unshakable trust in Adonai, he, God, must break man's fears and self-reliance. With Abraham, that's called testing. These humbling crises made David the great man and king that he was. We will all suffer various crises in our life. You're all facing your giants, but it's how we react to them in fear or trust that defines our character and integrity with Adonai. And I implore you now to keep improving. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25 says, Now every athlete in training submits himself to strict discipline, and he does it just to win a laurel wreath that will soon wither away. But we do it to win a crown that will last forever. Our society, our nation suffers from destination disease. Too many people want to do just enough of what's required to arrive, then retire. We have a statement here in a big military town, good enough for government work. You know, it's a sad state. We have destination disease. Kevin Meyer states, everyone is looking for a quick fix, but what they really need is fitness. People who look for quick fixes stop doing what's right when pressure is relieved. People who pursue fitness to do what they should, no matter what the circumstances are, people who constantly improve themselves make three processes an ongoing part of their life. Number one is preparation. Preparation. When individuals are intentional about learning something every day, when they become better prepared to handle whatever challenges they meet, such as listening, this is why we're doing these Kadima talks. There's a lot of other things we could be doing right now, but it's our heart and desire here, all of the staff here, to raise up leaders in the end days to press forward and establish God's kingdom upon this earth in the return of Yeshua. And so preparation is key to this. And when you become intentional about learning something every day, then you become better prepared to handle Whatever challenge or giant you face, daily devotions, reading the word every day, like a pianist playing scales, every sports star practicing, they all have coaches. This even folds into end-time eschatology. We got to be ready. We got to be prepared. Number two is contemplation. Time alone is essential to self-improvement. It allows you to gain perspective on your failures. Listen, David spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Yeshua, he spent 40 days in the wilderness. It is imperative. It's essential for self-improvement. Remember, we talked about perspective earlier. It allows us to gain perspective on our failures and successes so that we learn from them. It gives us the time and space to sharpen and focus our relationship with and I, to make it deeper, more intimate, to receive his vision, and enables you to plan and be ready for the future. Next, application. Bruce Springsteen said, a time comes when you need to stop waiting for the man you want to become and start being that man you want to be. And in other words, we have to apply what we've learned. Mishpocha, we've covered a lot of territory today, but what an example God has given us in the man after his own heart, King David. A perfect man? No. But a man with zeal, passion, and desire for God that brought his real-world experiences to save a nation in trouble. Mishpocha, may you be modern-day Davids. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.